The Upper Cumberland is filled with rich history that helped to shape our country to what we live in today. Join avid historian Troy Smith as he will tell you tales of characters and events that happened in your backyard. Mountain True starts now. Hello, you're listening to Mountain True from the Henson Oakley Podcast Center. Henson Oakley Family Dentistry now offering Zoom teeth whitening. West Jackson Street in Cookville. Now, to Mountain True and our uh, ongoing discussion. This is part three of the Moonshine Wars, as they were called, uh, and how some of the violence in Tennessee uh, connected in the big picture to, to Oklahoma, where it was even more violent at that time. So we've looked at a couple of cases of federal marshals who were killed in the line of duty in Middle Tennessee. A um, couple more, uh, two or three more that we'll look at. October the 11th, 1885, there was an incident uh, in Fentress County in which a couple of deputies were transporting a prisoner. And this prisoner was, uh, uh, had been arrested because of his moonshining activities. Well, they were they were ambushed. Uh, people with shotguns stepped out and fired on them. And federal uh, federal marshal, U.S. Deputy Marshal Miller Hurst, uh, was killed by a shotgun blast. The prisoner was rescued, and uh, the rescuers and the prisoner all managed to uh, to escape. So that was in Fentress County. Now. There were a couple of other such incidents in Putnam County. One in 1892, on July 21st, that involved uh, Special Deputy James Harris Ballinger. So what made him a special deputy? He had been deputized by a federal U.S. uh, deputy marshal, uh, he and a couple of others, to assist that marshal in uh, carrying out uh, an arrest and specifically, uh, the assignment was to arrest the postmaster, who, as it turns out, it had been discovered, had uh, stolen uh, some cash, actually stolen a check from the mail. Uh, and so Federal Marshal and his two recently deputized assistants uh, went to pick him up, and the, uh, uh, the guy saw him coming and opened fire uh, on the three of them. Uh, killed uh, Deputy Ballinger, and fled the state. So that one, not directly connected to to moonshining. I I don't think anyone was paying for their moonshine by a check in the mail. Uh, But this next one definitely was. A few years after that, 1901, um, near Monterey in Putnam County, uh, Deputy United States Marshal Thomas Price was uh, accompanying several revenue agents in an early morning raid on a still, a moonshine still, four o'clock in the morning. Uh, they descended on the still uh, to arrest the, uh, the guy who was operating it, but shots were exchanged. The, the moonshiner was wounded and arrested, uh, but three of the officers were shot, including Price. Uh, who apparently was shot in the head, uh, didn't die immediately, 
In fact, he lived on for several years, but he never recovered from his injuries. He was blind in one eye, partially paralyzed, and uh, it took six years of suffering uh, before the results of that injury wound up wound up killing him. Um, that's not a whole lot of people, but still, five federal marshals in this what twenty five year period just here within these couple of a uh, couple or three counties. And many more, many more losing their lives throughout the rest of the uh, the mountain south. Well, I'd said earlier that there was a bigger connection. And in fact, there is um, with, with Oklahoma and with some other things that were going on. Let's take a look at uh, what the big picture was in Oklahoma. You're probably aware that the... U.S. government started opening up parts of Oklahoma for settlement beginning in the late 1880s. Now, why did they do that then? Well, it was because uh, a law had been passed that uh, essentially is called the Dawes Act um, that sort of restructured um, reservations. It restructured um, Indian uh, territories. Uh, and sort of um, dissolved their tribal governments and divided their land up among the individual inhabitants. Each one got a little bit, and then whatever was left over, the government took uh, and opened up for settlement. Um, So there's all these new settlers come pouring into Oklahoma. Uh, People had been trying to do that illegally for years. They were called boomers. Uh, back in the 1880s, sneaking out into Oklahoma and trying to set up homesteads when it was not legal to do so because it was all Indian country. Uh, but once it became legal, you may be familiar with the uh, the story that with one of these big land rushes, uh, it was set up like a race. You know, there was a starting gun and everyone just ran out to try to stake their claim and get their best part of land. And some people had... Uh, had snuck out early the night before uh, in the moonlight and staked out their land so they could go right to it when when the race started. They wanted to get there sooner. Uh, They were called Sooners, which is where Oklahoma gets that nickname. Anyway, cities rose up overnight in Oklahoma, but there were still Indian neighbors. The lands that had been opened up were of the, quote, uncivilized Indians, whereas those tribes from the south who had been removed in the Trail of Tears were, quote, civilized. And, in fact, they had adopted a lot of uh, Euro-American ways of doing things. Some of them operated successful businesses. Some of them were entrepreneurs. Some of them, actually a lot of them, had large cotton farms, even plantations, um, that area along the Red River where it was particularly um, a good place to, to grow cotton, uh, their land wasn't divided up because they weren't the, you know, quote-unquote, bad Indians. However, more white neighbors were showing up and they were seeing all that good land that the so-called civilized Indians had, and they were getting, uh, you know, they were getting a, a little bit envious of that. And they started calling on their congressman and their governor and what have you, uh, their government, to 
a lot and divide up that Indian land too to, to make it available uh, because they wanted to get their hands on it, really. Um, and all the violence that was taking place, the violence that I have previously described, um, that was a result of the fact of this weird jurisdictional thing, right, where there's the Indian police who have no jurisdiction over non-Indians. So all these outlaws come pouring in, and the, the Indians can't do anything about it. And only a limited number of federal deputies are in there trying to do anything about it. And you've got gangs operating like the Dalton Gang and the Doolin Gang, uh, Cherokee Bill. Um, there were a couple of notable rebellious Cherokees, um, Zeke Proctor and later Ned Christie, uh, that uh, were very resistant. And so all this violence was being used as justification by the white neighbors to call on the government to come in and take that land away from the Indians, take those resources away so that they could be available for development by, um, by the, you know, uh, non-Indians, by, by, by the white folks. You may or may not have been aware of that. Um, probably you were. Uh, but it was a really big thing, and it was um, in all the papers in Arkansas and Texas and Kansas and all the surrounding states, all this horrible violence that they blamed on the, quote, savagery, unquote, of the Indians. They can't, uh, they can't provide protection. They can't behave themselves like civilized people. Someone needs to come in there and handle things for them. Now... What the heck does that have to do with the Upper Cumberland? We'll see in a moment, but first, I want to remind you that you're listening to Mountain True from the Henson Oakley Podcast Center, the Henson Oakley Family Dentistry, now offering Zoom teeth whitening at West Jackson Street in Cookville. So now, back to our story, back to Mountain True. What connection does any of this have to the Upper Cumberland? Well, it has a sort of a big picture connection to what was going on in southern Appalachia uh, and to a similar but lesser degree, the Ozarks. Um, there was a lot of development going on in those areas. Now, there's a lot of coal in Appalachia. Um, that coal had been there for a very long time. But before the Civil War, no one was digging that coal up. Most of the coal mining that was being done was in northern Appalachia, in Pennsylvania uh, and eastern Ohio. Now, in the south, before the Civil War, most of the, uh, most of the railroads were constructed in such a way. They were kind of not really uh, interconnected the way that the railroads were in the north, uh, they were just sort of hit and miss here and there. Uh, and they existed, they were invested in as a way to transport cotton from the interior of the South to the coastal cities where it could then be shipped out uh, overseas for sale because cotton was, well, cotton was king before the, the Civil War. It was a, uh, it was a guaranteed cash maker. So, therefore, 
um, a lot more investment was being made in it. Now, after the war was over, um, during Reconstruction, and particularly toward the end of and after Reconstruction, that's when you saw a lot of new railroads going up. And railroads are connected very closely to the coal industry because, well, uh, trains run uh, run on coal. Uh, but beyond that, it's really, you know, uh, if you're going to mine coal, what are you going to do with it up in the mountains if you don't have a train? Uh, it is uh, very problematic to try to pack that much uh, uh, material, that heavy material, on, in, in wagons and some of the poor roads that they had and were the mules. So the first step was building more railroads. And um, a lot of local Southerners entered into partnerships with Northern investors to build new railroads up into the mountains. And then they also entered into partnerships with Northern investors to open up those coal mines and to increase not just mining, but industry in the South. This was that time period after Reconstruction when a lot of intellectuals uh, in the South, a lot of political leaders, a lot of economic leaders were calling for the new South, one that was not anchored to agriculture, but was more industrial and more a part of the modern age. Uh, a lot of Southerners were very touchy about the fact that they were regarded as kind of backward um, particularly once the Industrial Revolution had kicked off in the U.S. and they had been sort of left behind uh, in large part because of the emphasis on cotton. So they're wanting to bring in new industry. They're wanting to modernize. Uh, it was during this period that uh, Nashville, uh, the people in Nashville started really trying to, to make efforts to become recognized uh, as sort of a a bastion of civilization. Uh, Nashville uh, hosted a big uh, uh, science conference uh, and several other things. Um, the uh, centennial of the state in 1896, uh, there was a, a park dedicated called Centennial Park, and what did they construct there but uh, a replica of the Parthenon, that Greek structure, that was all connected to the idea of Nashville being recognized as the Athens of the South. And if you're not aware of that, and now you stop and think about it, if you ever wondered why there's like these, uh, uh, this big Greek building in the park in Nashville, uh, that's part of the reason. And actually, if you think about the imagery of the football team, the, uh, the Tennessee Titans that play in, in Nashville, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the sword, uh, sort of the flame that's there. It's all tied in. Titans, of course, from Greek mythology, the uh, forerunners of the gods. Uh, so basically the idea is that in the South, a lot of people were investing money to try to bring in industry. There was the timber industry uh, as more and more uh, of the forest lands were, were, being, were being sold and were being harvested. Um, eventually, there started to be manufacturing, particularly of uh, textiles um, and coal mining. But there was a problem. Now, the problem was 
the people. Some of the people living up in those mountainous areas where the coal was, some of them just weren't that keen on the idea of selling their land. They weren't even that keen on the idea of selling mineral rights to their land because they quickly figured out that that was a a trap to really control the land, take away their control, uh, take away a lot of their control over themselves and their lives as they wound up uh, more and more of them working in these coal mines that was kind of a very oppressive environment uh, in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. There were few, if any, safety measures. It was a really hard and hard scrabble life. So a lot of Appalachian people resisted that. They didn't want anything to do with it. They didn't want to cooperate with the coal mines. A lot of the ones who were working in the mines, as we talked about a little bit in an earlier segment, started to organize and, and unionize. Um, and it was around that time that uh, similar things started happening that had been happening in Oklahoma not where the violence was concerned, but where the interpretation of the violence was concerned. Uh, and I think next time we'll be able to wrap the discussion up by um, sort of pointing to what those similarities are. I'll see you then. You've been listening to Mountain True. Download your favorites and keep up with new episodes in the Hints and Oakley Podcast Center.